Lord, we agree with those prayers and and know that you go before all of us and uh, we are aware that you know every little detail and all we can offer up is the little that we do know and uh, we've shared our desires and we leave them in your hands for the details that we have been able to share and we uh, trust in your sovereign hand that as you work in all of these situations bringing unbelievers to yourself major moves major decisions all the things that we prayed about we we leave in your hands trusting in you and as we get into your word we desire to have insight into what you have revealed concerning not only your people but those that uh, have not come into a relationship with you and we desire that uh, your word would come alive to us and that your spirit would illumine our minds to understand it and to be able to be clear on it and be motivated to live the life that you desire. So we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we're going to continue looking at God's remnant. And I'll give you a quick reminder of what we're talking about when we talk about a remnant. Uh, When the scriptures teach of that, we'll be looking at verses 5 through somewhere around verse 9. If for some miraculous reason we get to verse 10, that'll be great, but we'll have to see how far we get today. So just quick reminders again, keep reminding of the audience, because I think it's very important if you understand the author and the audience, it helps you understand the passage. These are believers in the city of Rome in the first century where there are many churches, a large contingent of Jewish people. So he's addressing them, and you kind of get a hint of that in one of the verses that we'll look at, where he almost gives his attention to Gentiles. We'll see that in the next passage, not not today. So everything he's talking about is to prepare the believer in order to be, be able to be more effective in sharing the gospel with the unbeliever in the culture they live in. And again, we've gone over this several times. You all have it memorized. We're looking at the vindication of God's righteousness, 9 through 12. God sovereignly working in history in his choice of Israel to bring them into a relationship. And he's setting the stage here for a new choice that God has made. And God has made a choice amongst the children of Israel throughout Not every Jew, not every descendant of Abraham is in the line of the covenant. And uh, there's always been selection or the doctrine of election. And that's kind of the focus, what God has done and his sovereign plan in verses 1 through 29 of chapter 9. Israel has rejected that plan as a whole, corporately, the nation. So the nation is under discipline. Because of that rejection, that's chapter 9, 30 through 10, 21, or the end of chapter 10, we're in chapter 11. That doesn't mean that that uh, discipline is forever or permanent or total, but in fact, there is a bright future for Israel. And I say all the time that history, world history is Jewish, and we're just living in kind of a some scholars call it a parenthetical period, a period of time that is that Paul describes as a mystery because it's not revealed in the Old Testament. And at any point in this parenthetical or mystery period, God could intervene and take the church out and begin to draw Israel to himself as is prophesied over and over in Scripture. So that's kind of a quick view of the division or subdivision that we're looking at and the context of 9 through 11. Israel is God's chosen people. What happened? He closes chapter 8 by giving these promises to all believers, which would include Gentiles, concerning justification. You can't lose it. Well, if you can't lose your justification... What about the nation of Israel? Haven't they been cast aside? And if that's the case, then how can you be so bold, Paul, 
in describing God's plan for the world as being secure. Well, that's why we have chapters 9 through 11 and why the gospel now is going out to Gentiles and even why Israel is set aside on a temporary basis. Many verses make that clear that we've already looked at. And so that raises the question, is God finished with Israel? In other words, is there no longer a future for Israel? And some have concluded yes, because they've overlooked chapters 9 through 11 in the book of Romans and other passages, by the way, and clear prophetic passages. And they've come to the conclusion that we have rejected over and over that the church has not replaced Israel. That's a false doctrine. And some attribute that false doctrine to many historical situations throughout the church age where the church, in some cases, including some of the reformers, have taken it the next stage of anti-Semitism. So the church has not replaced Israel. Replacement theology is a false doctrine, even though it permeates a lot of churches And in fact, overall, we could even say inadvertently Christians that are not aware or have not studied Romans 9 through 11 almost, without thinking about it, almost assume that the church has replaced Israel, but that is not the case, and that's what these passages are all about. In outline form, God has vindicated his righteousness. There's three major parts to this division. The past sovereign election of Israel, the present national rejection, and that's present during the church age, chapter 930 through 1021, and chapter 11 focuses on the future restoration of Israel. I've shown you three, at least three parts. We might divide the second one into two major parts or three. But the first 10 verses of chapter 11, there's always a a, a remnant. That was the focus last week. What is that remnant? Who are those that are part of that remnant? And we're still in that portion, but looking ahead, there is a future restoration. So there's a remnant that's present, a restoration that is yet future, 11 through 32. And then we have robust worship of God, verses 33 through 36 that concludes not only uh, chapters 9 through 11, but I see it as a conclusion to all of chapters 1 through 8. In other words, everything that has been discussed so far, I look at all of chapters 1 through 11 as doctrinal. This is after the introduction. So this is the doctrinal portion of the book, and beginning in chapter 12, we have a practical or what do you do with the doctrine portion or division? So we have worship at the end of the doctrinal section. In fact, that's an indicator that we have a change from one division to the next is Paul just once understanding and proclaiming all of the truths of chapters 1 through 11 uh, can do nothing else than bow down and worship. So we have robust worship. And breaking down our passage, first 10 verses here, the remnant is always present, and we have the existence of that remnant, 1 through 6, and the first verse kind of introduces us to everything else he's going to talk about dealing with Israel in chapter 11. And uh, just a quick reminder of that first verse, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he, expecting a negative response And just to make sure that we get a negative response, he states in the most emphatic way, this is impossible. May it never happen. May it never be. And now he goes into his argumentation to uh, give support for the fact that God has not totally and completely rejected his people. So in that we have Paul presents himself as the example that he is Jewish. In fact, he's the least likely amongst the Jews. He's a persecutor. He doesn't refer to it here, but if you know his background, and he just gives some of his relationship to the nation of Israel. We've looked at Elijah as a parallel to what Paul is saying here. And in the days of Elijah, as dark as it was, 
Elijah, thinking that he's the last one that is true to the Old Testament teaching, the true to the covenants, true to the promises. The only thing that is left is God's judgment. So he calls upon God to bring judgment on the nation. But God reminds him, no, there are 7,000 prophets that God has reserved or left to himself. I forgot to mention last time, but that verb there is a word that is related to the concept of the remnant to uh, set apart or to keep to himself. And that's what a remnant is, is a group of people that God has separated out for himself. So Elijah is the parallel. And we started looking at the existence of a present remnant beginning in verse 5. And it'll also include verse 6, a present remnant. We spend all of our time looking at the election of that remnant. I'd like to pick up from that and expand upon this concept, particularly because it comes up again in verse 7. So we have the election. If you haven't figured it out already, I'm using E as our alliteration key here to help us focus and to remember what's going on here. So the election of the remnant within the broader paragraph of the existence of that remnant and the issue that is raised, the essence of it, the example of Paul, Elijah's parallel, and now the present remnant. Quick reminder, we looked at the terms that are used, and most of the terms, there's at least four of them in the Old Testament Hebrew terms. In fact, this is this concept of a remnant is more of an Old Testament concept. I don't think I mentioned last time, but there's no reference in the New Testament to the church or a group within the church that is a remnant. Now, we might be able to support that idea by way of application, but there's no direct passage that deals with any aspect of the church as a remnant. It is always either in the common sense, the everyday sense of a remnant, something like what you women think of in terms of garments. After you cut out a garment after the pattern, you have material left over, you call that a remnant. Well, that illustrates for from our culture, that everyday concept. But the concept is also used in a more specific sense in reference to true believers within the nation of Israel that have existed throughout uh, Israel's history. And when we looked at the term, I gave you kind of the usage of that. And uh, just to remind you of some of the examples, there's many. Some of these examples include the terms, and some of them uh, don't include the terms, but I think refer to uh, a remnant by way of uh, description. In other words, the description of only the believers that are left that come out of a larger group, and primarily the larger group of Israel. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, on these, just a quick review of them. We're not going to look these up, so you might jot them down real quick. Noah and Lot, you could consider them as remnants, particularly Noah of humanity in general. They were the only ones that found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The rest of humanity had corrupted itself, and that's the reason for the flood in Genesis 6, 5 through 8. And Noah and his family found favor. Similarly, Lot in chapter 19, Lot and his family, you could consider them early Examples of, uh, of only the faithful that escaped the coming judgment and the only believers in that time frame. We saw Elijah as the example from 1 Kings chapter 19 and specifically a passage that Paul quotes is verse 18 where there are 7,000 prophets that Elijah is unaware of. All of the other prophets and many of the other prophets were destroyed by Jezebel and the rest of the people and even prophets, false prophets, bowed down to Baal, who was the god of the Phoenicians and obviously the god of Jezebel, who influenced Ahab, the king of Israel, 
along those lines as well. So Elijah thinking he's the only one, God tells him, nope, I've reserved 7,000 others besides you. So we have the example that Paul raises in Romans of Elijah, and uh, there was a remnant in Isaiah's day. We looked at a couple of passages in Isaiah. I don't think I gave you Isaiah 6. I don't know if I, I don't remember if I mentioned it, but in Isaiah 6, we have a mention, for example, in verse 6, where Isaiah, and by the way, it's very, very similar to the passage that Paul's going to get into in Romans 11, the the uh, rejection of God, the one true God, and the hardness of heart, and the blindness, beginning in verse 6. But then in verse 13, the conclusion of that paragraph, yet there will be a tenth portion in it. Now, the word remnant is not there, but here's an allusion to a remnant in other descriptive terms. There will be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be subject to burning like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Now we have kind of some imagery there, but it's referring to a tenth of of basically Israel in that context. So even in Isaiah's day, and including some of the other passages that we looked at, there's even a historical reference in 2 Kings 19 in the day of Hezekiah. That's also the day of Isaiah. In Jeremiah's day, Jeremiah 40, verse 6, Jeremiah went to Mishpah to Gedaliah, the son of Ahiakam, and stayed with him among the people who were left in the land. So there was a remnant during the Babylonian destruction of Israel, that remnant. And in fact, in verse 11, it's referred to using the word remnant that remained in Israel. There was also a remnant in Babylon as well. And you could consider Daniel and the three friends as part of that remnant. And there's references in Ezekiel to a remnant in Babylon as well. And it would include Ezekiel as well. And any other faithful later on, Mordecai and Esther would be part of the remnant in Babylon. Now, by the time of Mordecai, Babylon had changed hands as well. During the exile, Ezra 9.8, other passages as well, that would be a remnant. The point I'm making is this passage is telling us that there has always been a remnant and even in Malachi's day, Malachi 3.16, I'll let you look that one up. And then in Romans 11.5 refers to a remnant in the, in, the, in the first century that Paul is referring to. But you could consider also, and if you look at all of these passages, particularly where the specific word is used, except for those passages where it's used in a common everyday sense, but when it's used in this more specialized, I don't want to say technical sense, but in a more specific sense, referring to the remnant, it's always God's people in the Old Testament, particularly uh, once Abraham is on the scene, beginning with Lot, all the way to the first century, it is always in reference to a Jewish remnant, a portion of the broader that broader Israel that Paul is talking about throughout Romans 9 through 11. Not all of Israel is true Israel. Remember that passage in, in chapter 9 at the very beginning. So there has always also been a, a remnant of not only faithful, but those that God has preserved. So that's kind of a reminder. And the passage ends in verse 5. This remnant is according to God's gracious choice. Gracious in that this is a total work of God. It is totally undeserved. And we've been seeing throughout the book of Romans the concept of grace with the word itself. And in fact, the word is 24 times in the book of Romans, all the way beginning in verse 5, dealing with the 
doctrine of justification, we enter into a right relationship with God or are justified by faith and faith alone, apart from works, very specific, several passages in there, and supporting passages around them. Sanctification, we are no longer under law, but under grace when it comes to sanctification. Key verse there, 614. And then in the next passage after verse 5 here in Romans 11, we have verse 6. That kind of gives us an emphasis on grace. We'll get to that next. In fact, that's where we left off last time. So now he's going to remind us of the emphasis of grace I should have commented on this other passage. Not only is a great is it gracious, but uh, he's going to give us. And we looked at the word for election there, one of the words or within the word group. So there's a choice that is made, and I'm going to discuss this a little bit more when we get to verse seven. So verse six is going to kind of explain to emphasize the aspect of grace. Grace not only in terms of humanity in general, but specifically in relationship. Remember, the context is Israel and the this election of this remnant in verse 5 is within the broader nation. Within that broad nation, there is a remnant according to this gracious choice or gracious election, you might say. So what are the essentials of it? Lest you forget. And this is more of a reminder, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time. We've talked a lot about grace throughout Romans. So he's just basically going to explain the essence of it and how it is distinct, because this is the great stumbling block of the entire nation. They were attempting, he's going to allude to this some more, they were attempting to establish their own righteousness. Remember, we saw that in chapter 9. We saw that in chapter 10. On the basis of their own merits, on the basis of their own works, earning a right standing before God. And Paul is reminding this remnant or this group of people, and particularly the unbelieving element, but if it is by grace, It is no longer on the basis of all of the Jewish efforts, all of the Jewish works, all of the ritual, all of the detail, looking at the law and trying to squeeze out of the law all of the minutia. What does it mean to be observant of the Sabbath? Does it mean that you cannot lift anything over a certain number of grams? Does it mean that you can't walk a certain distance? All of the details, because all of this is the basis for gaining a right relationship with God. But grace, it is no longer on the basis of any of that. Grace is totally of God. It is undeserved. In fact, you cannot do enough, even though Israel, as we've seen in some of the passages We're seeking that righteousness. In fact, we're going to see the word seeking again in this context. And then he adds, otherwise, grace is no longer grace. So if you try to add anything to grace, it nullifies grace. It stands alone. And in this context, we're talking about this choice or this election. It is totally of God and nothing that man can do earns merit before God. It is totally uh, on the basis of grace. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. It takes away. And that was the, the, the focus and the main issue between why Israel was set aside. Now, beginning in the next verse, he's going to transition in verse 7, but he's going to get into the broader nation. In other words, Israel as a whole national Israel, and we've been stressing the national aspect. Within the national aspect, even though as a nation, the nation apostatized, but within that nation, God has preserved a remnant. And I gave you the examples throughout their history of a remnant. And the point Paul is making, there's a remnant in the first century as well. So now beginning in verse 7 through 10, 
He's going to talk about the exclusion of unbelieving Israel. There's an existence of a remnant, one through six, but uh, the rest of Israel, they are excluded. The exclusion of unbelieving Israel, seven through ten. And I'm continuing with my alliteration here. He's going to, first of all, in verse 7, contrast those that he has chosen that he referred to in verse 5, or the elect. He's going to contrast them with those that are hardened, and all of the rest are hardened. And he's going to expand this concept of hardening beyond this. He's going to talk some more about it later on in chapter 11. We won't get to, to it today, but it's a description of Israel today. In other words, it is describing the condition of Israel today and explains why many Jewish people are resistant to the gospel. Now, that should not discourage us from sharing the gospel with them based on the passage that we're looking at, because there is, and there will always will be, and there is a remnant today within the nation of Israel of those I believe that God has has chosen who perhaps have not believed yet, but there's also a remnant of those that have believed. There are Jewish people today that have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, some of us know some of them by name, and they do, in fact, exist. So he's going to contrast the elect that he's just described with the hardened giving you the whole verse. This is kind of what I generally give you is the whole sentence that runs into uh, verse 8. Notice that uh, we have a semicolon at the end of verse 7 there, so it goes on, so it goes together. That's why I've outlined it together. And in the outline, we have 7 and 8, and then it goes on further to not only uh, describe this exclusion of unbelieving Israel, but it starts off with verse 7, the elect are contrasted. So he begins with a question. Now that kind of stands alone in terms of a sentence, short one, what then, a a brief question. So what can we say or what, what can we conclude from what Paul has just said? And he reminds us of much of what he's already talked about, when he uses the what then here, obviously it ties it back to virtually everything he's talked about. And the specific issue in view here, what Israel is seeking. Now, in that context, how is he using the word Israel? Again, much like he's used it throughout the passage. But he's going to start contrasting Uh, right here, Israel corporately. What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. What is it that Israel is seeking? What did Israel throughout its history, even in the fourth first century, Jesus had discussion with primarily Jewish leaders, and what do we see illustrated over and over and over? What are they seeking? It's a good thing. Go ahead. Justification. Yeah, they're well. They're yeah, they're seeking a right relationship with God. Paul uses the word justification, but the problem, as we've seen over and over in this division, they are seeking it based on their own merit. Okay. Hey, right. Go hey, ahead, Ray. Steve. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, talking about Israel as a nation. Correct. Right in this context. Okay. And, and actually, virtually throughout, now he makes some distinctions, like in, uh, in chapter 9. We're going to go back and look at some of those distinctions. But in that, he distinguishes a group within Israel. That was the beginning of chapter 9. But generally, he's referring to the nation corporately. And I've been saying all along that there, there is a corporate choosing as well that pertains to the nation. And I think Paul is being more specific in terms of within that corporate choosing, there's a more specific 
election or more specific choosing that he's identifying in these passages in verse 5 that we've already looked at, and then he's going to expand it here. Notice in the same passage there, but those who were chosen, same word, obtained it. So a group within Israel that he's already described, a remnant, obtained it. Now we'll get back to that, but let's look at this word. In fact, there are several kind of key words that I think help us to understand the passage. The first one there is... Yep. Ray, can I ask a question? Sure. They're they're chosen because... Oh, this is Katie. Yep. So they're chosen because they believed. Is that right? Or they're chosen... I'm going to make a distinction with that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You're jumping ahead. In fact, there's two two major perspectives on that. One of them you're expressing and another one I'm going to express. We'll develop it further. First of all, take a look at the word, uh, what is Israel seeking? And the only thing I want to point out here is it's kind of, remember we've seen several terms where you uh, prefix a basic word or a word group with a preposition. Epi is a Greek preposition. See the epsilon, pi, yoda there, E-P-I in English if you want to transliterate it. That's a preposition in Greek, very common, thousands of times probably in the New Testament. I don't know, Nate, how many times? I don't haven't counted them. But different things happen when you prefix a preposition to a basic word, and the basic word is the basic word to seek something. It can be used in an everyday sense. It can be used in the sense of seeking God, and I think that's kind of the context here. And we have a preposition attached to it. Anyone remember one of the things that happens when uh, you attach a preposition to a verb like this one? Epizeteo is the... Yes. Emphasis. Em- <clears throat> emphasis is a good word. Or intensification. In other words, it intensifies it. It, uh, it makes it more intense. So if that's the case, the basic idea of to seek something... And I think that's what's going on here. When you have epizeteo, the preposition, I think it intensifies it. Now, sometimes it does other things, but I think this is an example of where the word means that it's not just a casual, it's not just a mild seeking, but you might even say that uh, it would include a more persistent seeking, a more persistent seeking one that very accurately describes what Jews did. In other words, they didn't just seek. They were meticulous. They were extreme, you could even say, in in seeking a righteousness. Now, that extreme went in a wrong direction in that it attempted to, it attempted to establish its own righteousness by their own merits. And you might look up 930. Would somebody care to just go back a few verses or a couple of chapters there to chapter 9, verse 30 and 32 and read those verses? I got got it. Go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead, Connie. Oh, what shall we say then? Sorry, got to turn the page. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. Um, all the way through 32? Yep. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but, as it were, by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. Okay, we developed that passage, you know, the stumbling stone, Christ, basically. But here's the same contrast that I think Paul is making here, and I I think it's a reminder of what he's already said in chapter 9. They pursued, here he uses the word seek, seeking, and it's an intense seeking. It's, it's not a casual thing. And you can see that in the first century, uh, they were fanatics, you might even say, in seeking this righteousness. Somebody else skip to chapter 10 and read 2, through two and 3, where we have kind of the same emphasis. He's emphasizing it over and over. For I testify... 
about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Okay, notice the word seeking again. Notice zeal for God. In other words, this was an emphasis, but they stumbled. They missed the whole point. God intended for them to seek him on the basis of what he has done rather than on the basis of what they were attempting to do. So they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. In other words, that that God had revealed. Now he's going to support that with the Old Testament in chapter 10. In fact, he continually goes back to the Old Testament. They should have known But it's an indicator, as we've been saying throughout, just as we saw with all humanity, the the depravity of, of the human heart. So this is an intense, you might say, a committed seeking, a persistent, present tense seeking. But those who were chosen obtained it. Now he's making the distinction. Those who were chosen. Now, he doesn't refer to the remnant, but that's who he's referring to in this context. He's already developed the concept of the remnant. He's stressing the choosing aspect of it. And like I said, this is the same exact word that uh, we have in verse 5. In fact, it's the same word that we already saw and the same word group where we have different words in chapter chapter 9. In this case, ekloge, within its part of that word group for election or choosing, and that's basically where we get the, the word for election. And we've already seen, we won't look all these up, but we've already seen in chapter 8, 33, we have the word, Uh, In that context as well, where it's talking about the elect, this exact same word. He's developed the concept before that without using the word, I believe, in verses 28 through 30. But the specific word in 8.33, we saw it in 9.11. Now we're seeing it in 11.5 and 11.7. It'll occur again in verse 28. Same word. So there's a stress. There's an emphasis here. We'll come across it again in uh, chapter 16, verse 33. Now, the point I'm making or going to make here, and I'm going to go against some in our camp, and, you know, I'm not going to ask you necessarily to believe what I'm saying. Be a Berean, check it out for yourself, and see what we have. And I think in this context, let me give you a thumbnail sketch I think at the heart of it is you have to ask the question, what did they obtain or what did they fail to obtain? It was not obtained by Israel nationally or as a corporate entity, but those who were chosen obtained it. What did they obtain? What is the it? And I think what Israel failed to obtain is what Jim mentioned. They failed to obtain justification. And the elect, in this broader context, this is the broader context of chapter 8 and even chapter 9 through 9 and 10, this group, this remnant, he describes as the chosen now, they obtained it. What is the obtaining? Now, let me review. When we were in chapter 9, we talked a lot about the doctrine of election, and we talked about the whole word group, I, I gave you kind of a summary of how the, the noun and the adjective and the verb, how they're used. And I surveyed all of the usages in the Old Testament. There are corresponding words in the Old Testament and the word group in the New Testament. And I gave you all of the options. I gave you the range of meaning of the word because in every specific context, you have to determine how is that word used in that context. And on the broader concept, one of the points that a lot of chafer people, a lot of free grace people, I'm a minority of one or two or three others, maybe, who knows. So I'm the heretic in the group. 
they will stress that election is always has a purpose. Now, I would agree with that. And in these passages, they will also stress the corporate aspect. And we've stressed that. I agree with that as well. The stress throughout, even within this context, when it says Israel, speaking of them corporately, but within Israel, there are true believers. And I think there's a distinction being made in this passage. And uh, the point that is being made is by this viewpoint is there's no passage that refers to election in reference to salvation or eternal life or justification and or to the individual. And I've been sharing that that is true in virtually every passage that we looked at in chapters 9 through 12. I don't disagree with that, but I think the doctrine of election also, you can't exclude the individual. And you can't, I don't think you can exclude a purpose that involves salvation. And I think here is one of the passages. So when it says the broader Israel has not obtained it, it has not obtained I agree with Jim that it refers to justification. And if it refers to justification, we're talking about salvation or eternal life. And I can't see how you can exclude the individual. And even within Israel, I think Paul is making that distinction. He's talking about individual Jews, even in 229. In fact, you might go back to that passage, 229, and maybe somebody read that verse. And notice what he's talking about specifically. Would somebody look that one up, 229? He's talking about the Jewish people. In fact, start with uh, verse 28 and read 29. Who's got that? I got it. Go ahead. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. Let me stop you there. Notice the distinction he's making. He's talking about the nation of Israel. He's talking about Jewish people. And what does it make, what does it require to be a, what he would say, a true Jew in this context? I think he's talking about the same thing in chapter 9, verse 6. Somebody else be looking that one up. Go ahead and read verse 29. What is it? And notice what he's talking about there. He, he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision of, is that of the heart, in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. So it's a heart response. That's what he's talking about throughout. Now, he's using kind of Deuteronomy language here. He's talking about the circumcision of the heart. That's an Old Testament concept. That's a kind of a a phrase that you could equate with regeneration or the broader term salvation. Now, somebody look at 9.6. This is in this uh, this uh, immediate context of the division where he's making the same vision. Who's got that one? Who was talking there? Is that you, Jim? No, but I can read it. Okay. But, but it, is, it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Okay. So he already began, remember, we've been seeing throughout chapter 9, There's a group of Jewish people within the nation, and he's saying not all of them are what we might expand and say true Israel or regenerated Israel, 9-6. So in this context, in verse 7, when he's distinguishing what they obtained, I think he's being very specific in terms of justification. And I think he's pertaining to individuals. He's broken away from corporate Israel, and he's talking about a remnant that is made up, obviously, of his individuals. And I think both are true. I think God always has a purpose in his choosing, and there are different purposes. And the various other passages, I think, elaborate on many of the other purposes. For example, Ephesians 1.4, ultimately holiness and blamelessness 
as we have there. And the, and the verb for election is in that context. So there's different purposes. There's purposes in terms of different categories. And remember when we were looking at the word, I, I talked about a corporate election of the nation of Israel, which is different. That has nothing necessarily to do with justification or directly, I would say indirectly, because I think it includes both. To make up a group, you have to have the individuals. And in fact, in chapter nine, he even names the specific individuals that originated the nation of Israel, Isaac, rather than uh, Ishmael, Jacob, as opposed to Esau, and it's through Israel. Now, we're talking about the covenant there. The Abrahamic covenant is through eventually Jacob and or his name was changed to Israel. All of that is corporate, but individuals make up the corporate, and I prefer to include both both aspects. Does that make sense? Ray. Go ahead. Yeah, Kate. I have a question. The justification um, election regarding justification, is that um, in the context of the individuals from Abraham, like the... Um, the individuals that make up Israel? Is that what you're saying within the context of that? Or uh, I think in uh, I think in in some of the, in most of the passage, yes and no. No, in that he's referring primarily to the purpose of God in terms of Isaac and Jacob relating to the covenant. But I think within that is also the concept of regeneration or justification, or if you want to use the word salvation, I think within that, I think you can't exclude it. Whereas the first view wants to isolate and, uh, and not think in terms of the individual aspect. Does that, does that make sense? And maybe yeah. Nate, yeah, it, maybe Nate, and well, maybe does uh, it extend? Maybe Jim does it extend will, to the Gentiles as well, or is this right now just talking about individual, um, individual as well as corporate well, uh, from it, Israel? In this context, it's it's Jewish people within corporate Israel that obtained it, as in contrast to those that are hardened in contrast to those that did not obtain it. Ray? Yeah, Jim and uh, Nate may disagree with me, so feel free. Go ahead. Well, I don't know if I disagree or not, uh, because that's not not my thought. Um, But a couple of interesting examples, I think, uh, corporate examples. Uh, One is uh, uh, corporate Israel uh, in the Passover. uh, It seems all of Israel in that case uh, were chosen uh, to, uh, to be saved in that case. Uh, but yet uh, at the end of the 40 years, corporate Israel, the, the group that was chosen were those that were, what, 20 or 21. Uh, the rest uh, died. Uh, in the desert, they weren't lost as far as their salvation was concerned. But the ones that went into the into the promised land, they weren't all necessarily saved from a justification point of view. We don't know uh, whether they came to Christ or not. But nevertheless, it was a corporate. Yes. Yeah. It I, was a corporate uh, deliverance. Yes. Now bringing that into context here, you know, there is an interesting part. You haven't gotten to it yet, but it, but and you will. And that has to do with Lord, the, Lord willing, the, with the Jews being that were cut off from the vine, and the vine was holy. To be to be a branch in the vine, you had to be uh, you had to be saved in terms of justification. Later, you know, Paul will say, "Well, they can be grafted back in." Mm-hmm. So it, it's like the people, and you know, it's kind of like like believers in the church too, we get separated from God uh, and, and we're cut off in a sense, but we can, you know, we can re-establish fellowship as we put it in our vernacular today. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I would, Those are interesting things. Yeah. I think that's good. 
I think it's good. I think that imagery that we'll get into, that corporate aspect is stressed again. And he's even applying it to the Gentiles. There's a corporate aspect there too. But I think underlying it all, I think it begins in eternity past with choices that God made. That's the doctrine of election. And it, it's worked out in time. Now, I think the counterpart, and we've stressed this, uh, God calls upon men to believe. And apart from faith, you can't please God or receive the uh, justification that is offered. We, From the divine side, I hold to the idea that God made, made choices. Over time, he's working out a plan such that he puts people in particular situations, that's predestination, where he's working this out in specific, and it's different for every individual. It may be he puts you in the family that is trusted in Jesus Christ, or maybe he puts you in an alcoholic family that awakens other areas of why you need Christ or whatever. He puts you in a situation such that he draws you eventually to himself, or the elect, I believe, to himself in such a way that uh, we are convicted of our sin and we are illumined to realize that only Jesus Christ is the answer. And when our minds realize that and we believe it, that's faith, then we are regenerated. So faith is required, but I think it's God that works at every stage of the way to uh, as it says in the Romans passage, and we stress the chain there, those he, whom he foreknew, he he called, and those he called, he justified, and those he justified, he, it even puts it in the past tense, uh, glorified. So, but the thing here, one of the things here in this context, I think that's difficult, for me at least, is that, first of all, the chosen, uh, those who were chosen, the verb isn't even there, you know, who were chosen. Chosen's a noun. Right. Uh, obtained it, and it is supplied, and we're saying that the antecedent in context uh, of it is justified, Just. uh, and it's not uncommon for the pronoun to be supplied, I think, and that right. you know, often done. But also, the other thing that makes this difficult, I think, is a is a comparison of those who uh, were chosen and those who were hardened, and it seems that later in the in the as a category, at least among those who were hardened, can be grafted back in. Yes, yeah, and we'll so, get there. We'll get there, and I think he's looking at it corporately because he's he's trying to he's trying to make some distinctions in terms of true and non-true Israel, I guess I could say. And he describes them as hardened, kind of a difficult concept to us. And by the way, we've already looked at this concept when we were in chapter 9 as well. He's, he's kind of putting things together, I think, here. He's, okay. he's drawing from what he's already talked about. And then he's going to give an illustration of it when he uses the olive tree in the next passage. Obviously, we're not going to get to it. But I guess the thing that I'm stressing here is where I'm coming from. And I don't know if Nate wants to reveal where he stands on this kind of this issue of the doctrine of election, or he'd rather stay anonymous. Well, I think as far as the uh, as far as this verse is concerned, and some of the different thoughts you've covered, the the basis pretty well. Um, there's going to be some things later on that in future studies within the same passage that, that will uh, contribute to this conversation as a whole as well. And there have been things previously, so I probably won't jump in here to muddy okay. the waters any or clear them up any. <laughs> okay. Okay. But yeah, I think you've covered the bases pretty well so far. Great. Thank you. Okay, now let's take a brief look. Uh, we won't get through all of this, but let me uh, kind of introduce it and we'll pick up here. The rest were hardened, and there's some uh, difficult problems here. Now, it's not so clear in Romans. It just kind of almost, uh, what's the word? 
doesn't identify the hardening. In other words, who's involved in the hardening here. But if you go back to the passages that he's going to quote, God is the subject of those sentences in the description of the hardening here. And if you remember, it's explicit in chapter 9 that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So if you uh, remember our study there, we're talking about the same uh, concept here. And here's another term that you need to look up and study. Porao, this verb to, to be hardened or to harden or to make uh, or to create a callus like on a hand from hard work. This hardening if you remember in the, that passage, I said both are involved. In other words, there's a, there's a big picture involved in the hardening of Pharaoh. And we went back to the Exodus passage. And uh, what God is doing is confirming what Pharaoh's heart has already decided. But I think there's a, there's a spiritual principle that you can observe today that applies to us even the believer, but you can see it in uh, the unbeliever as well. This concept well, Ray, of uh, an example of that is First Corinthians. You yep. know where people believers are hardened to the point of sin unto death. Exactly. Yeah, that's a good example. I didn't have that one in mind. Um, the one in First Corinthians five. Yeah, let me. Uh, we won't get into some of the details of it, but let me just kind of to introduce this for next time and to be able to apply this concept of, of hardening and, and to expand on what uh, Jim is talking about here. I think there is a spiritual principle. Uh, we are never neutral. We're either positive or negative, to use uh, Linda's mathematical terms. We are either growing in Christ or we are, we might even soften it and say, growing apart from Christ or departing from him. We never stay in the same place. So you can't rest in your past faithfulness to God. We, we, we need to continually grow because we are either, using Paul's language, either growing in Christ, conforming to his image, and or, and I think it pertains to the believer, we can be hardened. If we continually resist obedience, resist applying what God is revealing, then a hardening process comes about. Now, you can see this in the unbeliever. The, it is children are softer, you might say. They're not hardened. Children are more receptive and it's easier to bring a child into a saving relationship than it is a hardened old professor that has resisted God and uh, become even atheistic in their thinking. People become hardened. That's the whole issue in Romans 1. Remember, I used Romans 1 as an example of that progression. God revealing himself. I'll remind you of this next time. Romans 1 was an example of what's going on in Pharaoh when we looked at the chapter in or the uh, the chapter chapter 9 we saw the sequence and in the book of Exodus you have little details that give that sequence and it's an illustration of how it works out in one individual Pharaoh of the whole process that you see in Romans 1 God revealing himself Manny the response to that and God gives more revelation, revelation that can end in trust in Jesus Christ, special revelation. Now he's talking about general revelation in Romans 1. And or the focus of Romans 1 is that man in general rejects that. and But he is without excuse in that God has adequately revealed himself. And in that revelation, when man rejects it, it starts a process of hardening that ends up with God abandoning, and that's verses 24, 26, and 28 in Romans 1. And in this context, it talks about hardening, and we saw that God is involved. It's judicial. It is a judgment. It is the wrath of God in Romans 1. And in this context, the same thing is going on here. 
So by way of application, I would say that we need to, even as believers, you see it in the unbeliever, but you can see the same principle applicable in the believer in that we need to continually be growing. We need to continually be saturated with God's word and implementing God's word into our experience and uh, continually obeying and obviously confessing sin when we fall out of fellowship and be quick to do that and to remain in fellowship. So let me conclude with that little thought and would somebody close for us and then we're going to have an introduction by by Jenny. Anyone care to close for us? I will, Ray. Go ahead. Uh, Father God, we just thank you for this time that we have had to study your word for the technology that enables us to have this communication across long distances. And um, we thank you for what you have revealed about your plan and history, about your working in the amongst the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, and also the things that uh, we can apply to our, ourselves that, that we've heard today. Father, we pray that we would um, pursue you, uh, that we would uh, draw near to you, that we would not be um, fleeing from you, that we would confess our sins, that we would have hearts that are soft, and that we would be malleable in your hands, and that you would shape us into the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is exceedingly beautiful and amazing and holy and and Tim, we worship and praise, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 A closing uh, application, you might say, is hardening is a result, I'm kind of summarizing what I said before, is a result of resisting our Lord, and you can see it in the unbeliever, or you can, I think, apply it as a believer as well. And Paul is describing a hardening on, on the broadest of uh, basis in terms of the nation of Israel corporately. Okay, Jenny, are you uh, ready? And I don't know if you want to turn on your camera so we can see a little bit of who you are. And yeah, I'll just sure. turn it over to you and have you tell us a little bit about who you are for about six, seven, ten minutes. Sure. Can you guys see me okay? I think. I have my video on. There you are. Okay, great. I'm uh, I'm sitting up. Now. It's our first kind of chilly day of the fall. We we broke some records here in Denver for having, I believe it was the most days over 90 degrees in history this year. So it's it's finally nice and cool. Um. So yep, my name is Jenny, daughter to Barb and Steve, sister to Katie, and my brother-in-law, Mike, and uh, other siblings. Um, currently living in Denver, Colorado. And as I mentioned earlier, our prayer request, we are in the process of moving to South Dakota for a couple of different reasons, mainly uh, to be closer family after having our daughter, Hazel, uh, last December. So she'll be one in December. Um, Joseph's folks live there, and um, we just we want her to grow up around uh, the family. And we're in the process of closing on our first house, which is a, a big deal. As we've been renting uh, one-bedroom apartments for the past seven, six, seven years of uh, marriage. Um, I came to know the Lord when I was pretty young. Mom, correct me if I'm wrong. I think I was maybe five or six, um, grew up in a Christian household, um, very fortunate for that, and um, went to went to church every Sunday, um, did a lot of church camps over the summer and the winters, um, and then kind of unfortunately lost, uh, lost a lot of uh, touch, I guess, with my faith and with God over the years. Um, Probably wasn't hanging around the best people, but um, because he's very gracious, he brought me back through some trials that my husband and I experienced. Um, we had, um, unfortunately, two miscarriages um, before we uh, got pregnant with our daughter, our daughter, Basil. 
So that was um, humbling. It was hard, but it, it definitely recentered my faith and um, brought me back to a wonderful, wonderful place in his arms. And um, my husband also grew up in a Christian home. His um, parents are believers and spent a lot of time in the church when he was young. And um, and I think that's very important to us raising our daughter, um, having the mutual respect for each other's faith and um, knowing that that's the most important thing. Um, I don't think there's anything else I can think of. And I don't, is my, has my video been working this time? Because I only see a little figure. Yeah, we can see you. We can see okay, you. Okay, good. Okay, okay, good. Okay, just making sure. Except, um, uh, I think that's except, about it. Except you're all grown up. The last memory I have of you is you were about three or four years old. And oh, gosh. That, ha- that <laughs> has stuck with me up until today. Oh, oh, really? Good. Well, yep, this is me now. A little, <laughs> little older, a little grayer. <laughs> But uh, but very happy, very blessed, um, very very blessed. Great. Any qu- any questions from anyone of uh, Jenny? This is Katie's sister. I just want to say that I am sorry for your losses in miscarriage. Um, I am grateful that God used your pain to draw him back to you. But um, you have my sympathy and my condolences. Mm-hmm. Thank you so. Much. So much. I really appreciate that. You will see those babies in heaven, and that's an encouragement. A- absolutely. Yep. We're we're looking forward to that day. Heaven is Yeehaw. not too far away. <laughs> Yeehaw. You can also yeah, be assured. Celebrate. You can also be assured. Connie's one of the prayer warriors. She will be praying for your move probably every day. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. We really really appreciate that. Anything else before we sign off here? Any goodbyes? What, what does your husband do, do, Jenny? And do you work outside of the home as well? Yeah, that, that's a good point. I actually forgot to mention uh, what what I do. Um, I do work in the cardiac cath lab. I've been um, a technologist in the lab for the past two years. I graduated two years ago. Um, Absolutely love it. Um, it's been um, a, a wonderful door for me to have met some very um, strong Christians. Something I, I prayed for when we moved here to Denver, actually, was that um, some of my coworkers, just, I just wanted them to know the Lord, love the Lord like I did. And, oh, gosh, was I blessed um, in that sense. And um, my, my husband, Justin, he... Um, he's kind of a jack of all trades, but I guess his main um, his main career path has been a painter, um, interior, exterior, residential, commercial. Um, but he he could do anything. So we'll we'll see what the move holds. I I do have a job lined up. Sorry, there's a motorcycle going by. Um, I do have a job lined up, but he he doesn't yet. So um, I think he'll be stay at home dad for for a little bit until we can um, get that figured out. But uh, I know I know something great ahead of sport. Thanks for asking. <laughs> great. Well, thank you. Any thank goodbyes, you. final goodbyes before I shut us off? Have a great week, everyone. Thanks. Thanks, Ray. Thank you. Have thank a good you. Week. Have a good goodbye, week. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you. Thanks, Ray. Bye, everybody. Bye. God bless. Bye, guys. <laughs>